The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Now this weakness of the flesh of which our text speaks has made it impossible that any divine demands shall ever be fulfilled in us without the intervention of divine grace to provide the means of fulfillment. No man has ever bridged the gulf of his old nature in order to pass from death to life. Only the divine intervention of the Lord Jesus Christ can take us across the depths and bring us into our desired haven. It is the weakness of man's flesh that makes it necessary for the Lord to do all for us. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled The Weakness of the Flesh. You can use a canoe for a nice long trip on a lake or a river, but you would never survive if you tried to paddle it across the Pacific Ocean. The distance between God's holiness and our sinfulness is infinite, and many people try to bridge this gap by their own righteousness and good works. But God considers this way of approaching Him to be completely inadequate and unacceptable. Do you know God's method for attaining peace with Him? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 8, we're looking at verse 3. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, The Weakness of the Flesh. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for thyself, for when we know thee we have the answer to every problem and the supply of our every need. In knowing thee we have redemption from our past, power for our present, living and glorious hope for all eternity to come. Use thy word in this hour to teach our minds, to lift our hearts, and to inspire our worship and we'll give thee all the praise and glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In our studies in Romans, we come to the third verse of the eighth chapter, the law was weak through the flesh. Now we have shown that the law was divinely given, and that it was holy, just, and good. We now see that it was weak through the flesh. Does this mean that something divine can be limited by something that is human, or that God has voluntarily limited himself so that things which he intently desires cannot come to pass? I believe that any such conclusions are a travesty of spiritual theology and a negation of ultimate truth as it is revealed to us 
in that divine consubstantiation where God shows himself underneath and with the material word of the Bible revelation of his purpose and his heart. God wants men to be like himself, and he has devised a plan where that aim can be attained and fully accomplished. The Catechism tells us that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It is no less true that one of God's chief ends is to glorify man and to enjoy him forever. But God will never glorify man by giving man any of the credit. To do that would be to say that which is untrue, and not even God can say that there is any good in man which can satisfy him. In order to have a solid foundation for that which we are about to study, it will be well to set forth the fact that much theological and philosophical conflict arises from the idea that there is some connection between divine goodness and human goodness. But these are two different things, and not in any wise related. Divine goodness is altogether absolutely perfect good. Human goodness is counterbalanced by human evil, and there is always an admixture of this evil in any thought or act of human good, which can therefore never be accepted by God in any wise. When we measure the two types of goodness by the standards of human goodness, there are some men better than others, and God is better than all. But when we measure the two types of goodness by divine goodness, all men are on the same level, absolutely condemned by God, because their human goodness is tainted by its contact with the human heart. We've seen this truth thoroughly established at the time when we treated the verse which shows that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now it is this total difference between human goodness and divine goodness which makes for many theological misunderstandings. It would have been good if there had been an absolutely different vocabulary to describe the two. But since in the providence of God the same words are used to state the two phenomena, the semantic difference must be set forth by a whole series of ideas and comparisons which bring out the incompatibility of the two. One of these comparisons is found in our text. The law was weak through the flesh. After it has been established that the law is divine, it is flatly stated that it can never accomplish its purpose because of that inherent weakness that lies in man himself. We are incapable because of the nature of our nature. God is going to bring his divine purpose to pass by a method that will glorify himself and his son and thus he will accomplish by the incarnation and death of his Savior Son, that which never could be accomplished by the law, divine though it was. The law could do nothing toward bringing righteousness because of the weakness of man through his sinful incapacity, through what has been called his total depravity. Now, someone who has heard that theological term, total depravity, without knowing too much what it really means, may have prejudices which rise in antagonism against the truth as soon as the word is spoken. Do not react against the doctrine before you find out what it is. Total depravity does not mean that there is no good in man according to human standards of goodness, but that there is no good in man according to divine standards of goodness. There is nothing that is in man, nothing that could arise from man or be produced by man, which God could ever accept for even a moment. 
the holiness of God demands that he repudiate anything from any so-called goodness that arises outside of himself. He can accept the goodness of the unfallen angels because it is his own goodness assented to by these creatures, but he must repudiate any acts of goodness that might be produced by the fallen angels because it is a goodness that does not recognize all righteousness as belonging to God and he must repudiate any acts of goodness which arise from man for this same reason. He can accept the goodness of any human being who has been born again, and who acknowledges moment by moment that any goodness which comes from his life must proceed from the Lord Jesus indwelling his being, and not from the human goodness which is Adamic. Human goodness may be likened unto a canoe. Now a canoe is a lovely little boat, for its purpose. It's meant to be used on rivers and lakes in calm waters. It's admirably suited for young people on a beautiful day or an evening in June. But let the user of the canoe take it to a seaport and talk about using it to cross the ocean, and he must immediately be informed that it is a totally depraved boat for such a purpose. The trip from New York to France or from California to China cannot be made by a canoe even in the month of June when the ocean is generally calm. So the human character is admirably suited to take an individual around the daily course of life in the midst of a sinful world, but it is a totally depraved thing for the passage from earth to heaven. If a canoe be adjudged by all canoeists to be the best canoe that was ever made, it is still insufficient for the ocean passage. If a human character be adjudged by all men to be the best human character that was ever developed, it is still insufficient for the path from death to life, from earth to heaven. Now, I believe that the understanding of these principles comes to any individual in two ways, what might be called theoretical and practical. Theoretically, an individual is brought to the place at the beginning of his Christian experience in which he accepts in his mind the general idea that there is no hope for salvation in himself, and that there is all hope in Christ and in Christ alone. In the measure that he studies the Bible, or theology, his mental processes will conform more and more to the acceptance of this doctrine. If the study has been mainly theological, the mind will be able to accept the doctrine of total depravity and will even use it as a hard shell around one's life to protect the soft tissues of the being against the probing desires of the Holy Spirit to form Christ within the life of the individual. Now, if the study has been more biblical, the shell will be softer, but it still may be a protection to the flesh, which seeks in every way to spare itself from the penetrating work which God desires to perform. But in the lives of all who have been truly chosen of God and who have received the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of himself, the truth of the doctrine of total depravity will be that which will cast the soul back on God at every instant and which will clear the stage of life for the performance of truly Christian goodness, divine goodness, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in the life of the believer. One who receives Christ as Savior is not born again with full knowledge of spiritual truth any more than a baby born physically comes into life with full knowledge of earthly truth. The Christian grows slowly, 
sometimes very slowly, into the knowledge of his own nothingness. It is even a fact that many Christians do not want to accept the truth of their own depravity. Our older hymn writers have given us well-known hymns which modern editors have toned down to lessen the impact of this stern and terrible truth. As it was originally written, Beneath the cross of Jesus I fain would take my stand, contained the following stanza. Upon that cross of Jesus mine eyes at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my stricken heart with tears, two wonders I confess, the wonder of redeeming love and my own worthlessness. But in most modern hymn books, my own worthlessness has been reduced to my unworthiness. And again, Isaac Watts' famous hymn, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed, has undergone the same sort of emasculation. It was first sung, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? But such language is not palatable to the unsaved or to carnal Christians. And in our modern hymn books, the last line reads, For sinners such as I. It is only slowly, painfully, and sorrowfully that the believer becomes fully aware of the depths of the Adamic nature within himself. The more advanced Christian will not be afraid of taking his place as a worm of the dust or of singing of his own worthlessness. He even knows that the acceptance of the doctrine of total depravity exalts the Lord Jesus Christ and magnifies his worth as one who would indeed stoop to rescue sinners who were helpless and defiled. I had an experience once which may serve to illustrate the manner in which a believer grows into the acceptance of the truth that his Adamic nature is totally unable, totally depraved. Several years ago, I motored across the continent with my family. One summer day, we had seen some of the beauties of the national parks in southern Utah, and we drove on to the north rim of the Grand Canyon of the Colorado, arriving there after sunset. We found our rooms for the night, ate our dinner, and then walked down to the path to the wall that guards the edge of this mighty chasm. It was a night when there was no moon. We looked out before us into pitch darkness. I told my children what lay before them, beneath. But it was impossible to see anything whatsoever in the inky blackness. Far to the south, we could see the lights of the hotel on the south rim of the canyon. I told my children that between us and those lights was a distance of many miles, and that between us there was the greatest canyon in the world going down a mile to the great river which lay hidden beneath us. I suppose that the children accepted what I said by faith, and that they formed some sort of mental picture of that which I described to them. Now, if we had left the place and driven on, they would never have understood what the canyon really was. The next morning we arose early, before sunrise, in order that we might see the coming of the dawn. The canyon was still invisible beneath us, but far to the southeast we could see the great range of the San Francisco peaks. At first they were but a faint shadow, and then they became etched in outline, and soon the first rays of the invisible sun touched them. The canyon was still invisible beneath us. It was as dark black as it had been the night before. The line of things that we could see descended from those peaks to the rim of the canyon near us 
and then to the distant rim to the south, but the depths of the canyon were still not visible to our sight. It was only after there was considerable brilliance of the new day that our sight began to pick up the walls of the canyon, and little by little we were able to see farther and farther to the very depths of the canyon. Now I know that my own experience of the awareness of the total depravity of my being and the incapacity of my fleshly nature is a close parallel to the experience that we had on the rim of the Grand Canyon. At first, I was aware of the biblical statements concerning my nature, as a man might be aware of a geographer's description of the Grand Canyon. Then, as time passed, I stood on the brink of my own sinfulness without knowing that it was there in reality. At last, I saw not the canyon of my depravity, but the distant mountain peaks of the cross of Jesus Christ, brought to my vision by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Then only by contrast did I begin to see the edges of the abyss that is the human heart. And as the years have passed, my sight has gone deeper and deeper into that sinful depth. And still I discover from the word of God that which I might call the statistics of my depravity, without having known at too close range the depths of its capacity. Every Christian must come to this knowledge for himself. And if you have ever seen a man who has fallen over a cliff into some abyss, wrecking his frail body on the rocks below, you will understand why a holy man, two or three centuries ago, drew back with sorrow and anguish as he saw a felon being driven to the hangman's gallows saying, there but for the grace of God go I. Now this weakness of the flesh of which our text speaks has made it impossible that any divine demands shall ever be fulfilled in us without the intervention of divine grace to provide the means of fulfillment. No man has ever bridged the gulf of his old nature in order to pass from death to life. Only the divine intervention of the Lord Jesus Christ can take us across the depths and bring us into our desired haven. It is the weakness of man's flesh that makes it necessary for the Lord to do all for us. There is nothing that we can do for ourselves. Again, the weakness of the flesh of which our text speaks has made it impossible that man can ever do anything effectively for man. Just as I can do nothing for myself, so man, individually or collectively, can do nothing for others or for society as a whole. This is why the human intellect can never solve the problems which arise from the sum total of all of the sin of mankind. Some men have thought that education could bring man out of his difficulties, but education has never done it and never can do it. About 40 years ago, the then president of Stanford University, David Starr Jordan, delivered an address on the value of education and the solution of the world's problems through the increase of human knowledge. He became quite visionary and said that he could see in his mind's eye the dismantling of the great warships of our Navy and their use to carry large groups of doctors, nurses, and teachers to Africa and the other dark places of the earth, and that the transformation of the whole world into a place of lasting peace and righteousness was just at hand before the ink on his manuscript was scarcely dry, and before the echo of his voice had been scarcely stilled, the guns of those ships were booming in the First World War. But what education could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, 
God himself will ultimately accomplish by his own intervention and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as education has done nothing for the moral life of man and has not been able to heal the open sores of the world, so diplomacy and parliamentary procedure will not be able to do anything for mankind. The great buildings of the United Nations now stand at the eastern end of New York's midtown streets. They stand there as a tombstone might stand above the vaulted dead in a cemetery. They remind us of the abandoned buildings of the old League of Nations that stand above the Lake of Geneva, marking the death of an earlier effort to unite man for the purpose of bringing peace on earth to men of ill will. And these two great tombstones in New York and Geneva remind us of the first of the monuments built by mankind in an effort to unite the world, a monument which became the first of the sepulchres to bury all such hopes. For there in Babylon are the ruins of man's first efforts to use the supposed powers that lie in the weakness of the flesh to do something to overcome what God has said can never be overcome by men. Babylon, Geneva, New York, three monuments to man's efforts to step across the Grand Canyon of the total depravity of human nature. What diplomacy could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God himself will ultimately accomplish by his own intervention and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The weakness of the flesh demands the intervention of God. Nothing else than divine intervention can touch the needs that have arisen because of the presence and the fruitage of sin in our lives. And thus it is, this weakness of the flesh, this total depravity of man, which furnishes the dark background against which the glory of the love of Christ is manifested in his incarnation and in its manifold purposes. Our context makes it possible for us to end what otherwise might be a message of gloom on the note of highest triumph and hope. The weakness of the flesh is an impossible barrier to all of the efforts of man, but it is not a barrier for God's irresistible grace. All that God desires, he will fulfill, even within the lives of men who are totally incapable of themselves. For that which the Lord plants within us in our regeneration has no weakness in its structure. How different the flesh from the new spirit. The problem is to put infinite blessing within the structure of a man's being. It is the problem of putting the ocean into a quart measure. It cannot be done. But through the Lord Jesus Christ and his work, we are joined to him forever, and we are made partakers of his divine nature. And we soon begin to understand that this new nature is elastic, infinitely so. We receive the first outpouring of blessing and learn that there is not room to receive it. And then suddenly we discover that we have an enlarged capacity. And again, for this new capacity, there comes the inswelling wave of divine blessing. And again, there is not room enough to receive it. But there is again the consciousness of another enlargement of capacity. And soon we become aware of the nature of the divine process, which is to last forever. We are eternally to have our capacities enlarged, to receive yet larger stores of grace, 
which in turn enlarge our capacities to receive still larger stores of grace. And while we are aware that this enlargement and blessing and enlargement and further blessing shall continue forever, since this is life eternal, that we might know thee, the true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent, we are also aware that even now, at this present baby stage of our new life, the righteousness demanded by the law, but which could never come to fruition because of the weakness of the flesh, is nevertheless being fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And our God and Father, we pray thee that thou shalt bless this word to each listening heart. If there be any who have not been born again, give them restlessness until they come to rest in Jesus Christ. But upon all thy redeemed own, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide, and a new sense of the rich power of thy grace in our lives. And unto thee be the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power, now till the Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen. God rejects any attempts to come to him on the basis of good works, self-righteousness, or efforts of the flesh. But he accepts all who turn from self-confidence and trust fully in Jesus Christ. We hope you've benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, The Weakness of the Flesh. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the internet by visiting us at AllianceNet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, The Weakness of the Flesh, or simply request message number R8-4. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, The Bible Under Attack. Believers embrace the Holy Scriptures as the very Word of God. But for years, the reliability and trustworthiness of the Bible has been challenged by the enemies of the gospel. This five-chapter booklet addresses subjects such as Jesus and the Scriptures, written by God, the inspiration of the Scriptures. This booklet powerfully reaffirms the inerrancy, infallibility, and authority of the living Word of God. Ask for your free copy of The Bible Under Attack when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you've benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at AllianceNet.org. 
Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.